It's one of the best-selling books of all time, has been translated into 35 languages, sold hundreds of millions of copies worldwide, won a Pulitzer Prize, and the film version even earned eight Academy Awards in 1939. Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind is, by definition, a successful, influential work of fiction that's been absorbed into American popular culture. But what if that influence comes at the expense of historical accuracy? Or even worse, at the expense of an entire people group? In the Southern epic novel, what do we miss when the African-American experience can only be interpreted through the perspective of masters? This is Let There Be Lit, a show where we examine classic works of literature through the lens of biblical truth. Our passion is for fellow believers in Christ to ignite their imaginations and create a sense of empathy through the art of reading. As we explore both classics and cult classics, join us to figure out why these works have stood the test of time, connected generations of readers, and how they challenge us to live out the truth, beauty, and justice of God's kingdom. All right, welcome to Let There Be Lit. Uh, We are excited to talk about Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. And um, it's going to be a doozy, I think. (laughs) There's a lot to cover. And we're going to be approaching this one a bit differently. So instead of talking about themes, motifs, symbols, stuff like that, and relating it to the gospel, we're really going to be talking about um, some issues with um, author responsibility, with genre, with racism, and how that affects our reception of the novel. Just a few facts about Gone with the Wind before we move forward. Uh, It was written by this unknown Atlanta journalist, Margaret Mitchell in 1936. And so it was initially submitted in dozens of manila folders to be made into a screenplay. But once it was published, it quickly became this best-selling novel. Um, It's this classic coming of age story, uh, which is in the literary realm called a Bildungsroman. And so it follows an anti-hero, not a hero, through her highs and lows of pre-war Southern culture, wartime survival and post-war reconstruction. It was published at the perfect time as well. So in the 1930s, the biggest thing that was going on is the depression, right? And so the themes of grit and survival resonated with depression era audiences. They really just latched on to um, this book and they were inspired by Scarlett's determination and all the ways that she uh, made decisions to uh, ultimately survive. I personally owned the DVD of Gone with the Wind, um, but I actually got the inspiration to read the book when I went to China. Incidentally, I went to China with a group of friends and I was talking with a local Chinese student and uh, I was asking him, he was in university and I asked him what he was reading. He's like, oh man, I'm reading Gone with the Wind right now. And I was like, that is so interesting. Like it, it's made its way all the way over to China and then it's still a compelling read and it can still be relatable to audiences over there. So um, I was like, man, I should pick that up. So I did. After, after I got back to America, I did. I started reading it. The novel was published in 1936, but Margaret Mitchell actually wrote the novel between 1926 through 1929 during kind of the Roaring Twenties. So that's why we see Scarlett appearing more masculine um, and some of the, explain some of the countercultural influences 
the movie was released in 1939, which was right on the cusp of World War II. So through its different publications and, and different iterations, we see how it's resonated with American audiences at, at different milestones and landmarks in our own history. Um, I think Sydney and I, I think this has been a hard novel for us to read because we're both from the South. And um, there's a lot um, to confront, a lot of challenging things to consider um, about the culture that we grew up in, that we both loved. And, and some of it has really good things to offer, but a lot of it, especially um, a lot of what we see in the novel is problematic. And so, um, yeah, Sydney and I are going to do the best we can um, based off of our attempt to learn as much as we can about um, how to read and understand human beings more lovingly. We would love your feedback on our conversation just to hear what we could be doing better or anything we might have missed. So please um, let us know if you have feedback for us after the conversation. In case you need brushing up on a plot summary of Gone with the Wind, here it is for you. Um, and a heads up, if you don't really need a refresher, then just go ahead and skip about three and a half minutes ahead. So Gone with the Wind is a quintessential Southern epic whose momentum runs on its characters' romances, revenge, disappointments, and survival. We're introduced to Scarlett O'Hara, a pretty Southern belle who lives on a large Georgian plantation called Tara. She's vain, conniving, but hopelessly in love with Ashley Wilkes, despite his being betrothed to his plain, frail cousin Melanie. Scorched by his rejection, Scarlett latches onto Melanie's brother Charles as an act of revenge. She's a wife two weeks later a war widow two months later, and a mother seven months after that. Motherhood and mourning etiquette leave Scarlet stifled until her move to Atlanta, where the city's hustle revives her spirits. Enter Rhett Butler, a dynamic scoundrel of a character who weaves his way in and out of Scarlet's life as she navigates heartbreak, financial ruin and success in her resentment and nostalgia for Southern culture. Rhett often crosses paths with Scarlett after she moves from Tara to Atlanta once the Civil War begins, and though she resents his bluntness and his ability to see through all of her facades, Scarlett and Rhett share a camaraderie for their similar distaste of restrictive Southern social norms. Survival and gumption mark Scarlett's motivations, and she helps deliver Melanie's baby and plans their escape from a Yankee-invaded Atlanta, only to have to fight for survival upon returning to a battered and barren Tara. She joins her sickly family and the few slaves left on the plantation to eke out a living during wartime and post-war life. She kills a Yankee cavalryman, attempting to loot Tara, and even marries her sister's former beau for money, all in the name of survival and protection of her land. Murder, burning ties of family, empty marriages, becoming a ruthless businesswoman, all these things Scarlett does, she believes, from a place of courage and necessity. So, after her second husband dies in an attempt to avenge Scarlett being attacked in a poorer part of town, Scarlett is yet again contemplating her next move to support herself and her assets. Rhett makes his move, proposes a marriage of fun rather than love to Scarlett, and the two wed and honeymoon in New Orleans. 
While both Scarlet and Rhett are marked by a resourcefulness and savvy for selfish gain, Rhett understands the necessity of maintaining social connections, unlike Scarlet's hard-headed disregard towards her reputation. This becomes even more clear upon the birth of their daughter, Bonnie, who Rhett shows unabashed affection for. Rhett works tirelessly to earn himself back into the good graces of Atlanta society for Bonnie's sake, while Scarlett is still scorned for her dirty business dealings. Her apathy toward motherhood, marriage, and social connections begin to create a wedge between her and Rhett. And things turn for the take a turn for the worse when Scarlett and Ashley are spotted kissing at her sawmill. Melanie, upon hearing the news, immediately rushes to Scarlett and Ashley's defense. Rhett, however, falls into a drunken rage, ending with him raping Scarlett. Despite a renewal in her feelings for Rhett following this encounter, Rhett refuses to reconcile and subsequently takes Bonnie on a long trip from Scarlett. It isn't until the death of Bonnie in a riding accident that their tumultuous relationship reaches its climax. Both become hedonistic and vindictive in their pain. Rhett is in his grief and Scarlett in her loneliness. Shortly after the funeral, Melanie falls ill and Scarlett is called to her deathbed as Melanie charges her with caring for Ashley and their son after she dies. It isn't until Ashley is finally hers for the taking that Scarlett realizes her love for him was merely a fantasy and a yearning for old Southern life. She runs to find Rhett and confess her love for him only to find Rhett packing his bags and leaving her, his love for her worn out. Collapsing in misery and shock, Scarlet's spirits revive at the idea of turning to Tara for comfort, um, to be comforted by Mammy, her efforts once again turning to survival and comfort. So a lot of people love this novel because it, it's really approaching the question of how do we cope with survival and what are tactics and coping mechanisms that we use? And we see Scarlet survive just on sheer willpower. I, I think that is one of the traits that people admire about her as an, and, and what makes her such a beautiful anti-hero is her ability to overcome challenges um, and to find solutions to problems that she shouldn't be able to get out of, but somehow she overcomes them. With the book being told from her perspective, we begin to cheer for her. One of the things that is really brilliant about this book is that it's from the perspective of someone who is extremely vain, extremely conniving, extremely proud and selfish. I really do applaud Margaret Mitchell for writing a character like Scarlett O'Hara, who is not someone I would necessarily want to be in the same social circles with, but who I find um, really compelling to read on paper. We see her surviving, I think, in two key ways. And one of those is compartmentalizing. She says, you know, I'll, I'll think about these things tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I don't have time. I don't have capacity to think about them right now. And we also see her doing it just, you know, again, by stubbornness. No one else is going to do it. Someone's got to do it. Gone with the Wind is known for the theme of survival. That's kind of what brought about a lot of its success. But I think as I was researching this book, as I was rereading, um, I realized that another key theme in this book is how to grapple with failure, how to grapple with the disappointment that comes from that. In the book, uh, we see Scarlett and her social circles, her family, her friends, um, go into the Civil War uh, really excited, energetic, but 
as time goes on, a lot of people die in the war that she knows. Um, and then you have Ashley, who she just keeps pining for, who kind of represents everything that she kind of fantasizes about with the old South. So you see people like Ashley, you see other soldiers kind of grappling with how to move on after the failure and after the defeat of the Civil War and see your values, see your physical surroundings um, and even the people around you change and how to deal with that. The narration is through Scarlett's perspective. And so I think that stands the freshest in our minds. Her ability to to examine and move forward from disappointment is unique from all of those around her. And that really is what makes her the protagonist. Yeah, it's just kind of like this subtle underlying theme throughout the book as you as you see a personal picture of moving from the old South into the new South reconstruction period. So I think that's what's so compelling about a book like Gone with the Wind is that it's an up close picture of what could have happened during that period of history. There's a lot that we could say in terms of explicating the novel, and I I think we'll do that a little bit more closely as we talk about the characters and and how they're responding to things or how they're portrayed. But I think it's most important for us in this conversation to address the sticky points of this novel, because in so many ways, it's a classic. It's embedded in not just Southern, but American, and like Sydney said, kind of international culture as ideals of um, the American South. And there's a lot wrong with that picture. And so we wanna make sure that we talk about those things. The first tricky point is that I think so often Gone with the Wind is is considered a historical novel because um, it was written in the thirties, but it was written about the past, the 1860s, and it's retelling the Civil War, the story of the Civil War and Reconstruction in the South. Um, but I think it's important to realize that that wasn't Margaret Mitchell's intention necessarily was to tell an accurate representation. She wasn't a documentarian. Um, she was, in this case, a novelist. So Gone with the Wind is situated in a particular genre called historical fiction. And so historical fiction, I'm sure we're all familiar with that genre to some extent, but it uses a fictional story within the context of non-fictional events. So you have to ask yourself when you're reading this novel um, and other novels in this kind of genre, what is my takeaway from reading something like this? Is it to inform Um, the particular historical context of the time, or is it to entertain? It's interesting as we think of examples of historical fiction that seem really popularized, a lot of them are for Christian audiences. And so I think it touches on something that this Hungarian literary historian and critic, his name's George Lukacs. And and so he talked about how this new genre of historical fiction, when it was first developing, he was talking about how it created a different reading experience for audiences, right? So it 
history no longer was something to be recounted and to give an accurate representation of, but it was something to be experienced through fictional characters. And so I think that may be what is so compelling about a novel like Gone with the Wind, because it touches on so many things that are still so relevant and identifiable in Southern culture. As we try to re-experience and um, live through these fictional characters, um, we also have to just be careful when we are dealing with a genre like historical fiction because people can use novels either consciously or unconsciously to shape their perspective of historical events. And so you kind of have to approach a genre like historical fiction um, to just be hyper aware of what facts you're taking in and what's missing and what was what's the purpose of you even engaging with that kind of literature in the first place. Margaret Mitchell got a lot of chronological events correct about the Civil War and about certain battles that took place. And the novel is swept along by those events. You find that a lot of other things are missing, like certain perspectives or representations in the novel. And so that's where reading historical fiction can be kind of sticky because where are you, where are you getting depiction of history from and are you how much of you how much of it is influencing your perspective of history fiction in my perspective is designed to enhance the emotional aspects and encourage creativity right so we're we're thinking outside of the box we're putting ourselves in other people's shoes which is important and it's good and we should be doing that in historical settings. However, this is not a textbook. Anytime we read fiction, reminding ourselves we can we can empathize with these people um, and that's important and that's good, but it doesn't mean that those people are always good or correct or the story itself is good or correct. And that doesn't have to take away from our experience of empathizing either. I like that you pointed that out because with Scarlet, it's like, we have all these emotions and reactions to her story um, and to the, you know, somewhat accurate historical events that are represented in Gone with the Wind. You have to stop and reassess and, and question like, okay, is, is what I'm feeling justified or am I just being swept along by the justifications and the rationale behind the protagonist of this novel? And so again, I think that comes back to reader responsibility of just being aware of where your emotions are, what you're investing in, if that's what the author wants to do and, and the brilliance of the story itself and getting you to relate to someone who is kind of, who would be unrelatable in real life. Yes, reader awareness is so key, not just in fiction, but in reading scripture too, and knowing the con the genre of what we're reading and the intention behind um, what's being communicated to the reader. Perhaps the, the biggest obstacle of this book or, or the biggest um, deficit in this book is the fact that it leaves out the voices of Black Americans. And so what we see in Gone with the Wind is just a very minimum snapshot um, and, and not a very flattering one either of the 
enslaved people at Terra is mostly the voices that we hear. That is one of the biggest problems with the book is just the lack of Imago Dei we see in um, the Black characters. We, we see a lack of accuracy and a lack of fullness in the portrayal of, of these people. Nowhere in the novel does it mention, does it give credit to the fact that these sprawling homes and um, estates were built and then maintained at the hands of men and, we- men and women who were sold, who were owned by other people. And that is an injustice on Margaret Mitchell's part. Yeah, there's this article that I read as I was researching for this episode, and it's by Drew Gilpin Faust, and it's called Clutching the Chains That Bind, Margaret Mitchell and Gone with the Wind. And so in it, he gives this kind of scathing review of the book and Mitchell's intentions um, and then result of portraying African-Americans in her novel. And one quote was just really intense. And so he says, White Southern culture, after all, was only made possible by the oppression of four million African-Americans whose labor made Southern wealth, gentility, and even ladyhood, looking at you, Scarlett, possible. Scarlett's upbringing, her social circles, her desire um, and fantasy to live this life um, of the Old South with Ashley and living happily ever after, that was only made possible by Mammy and all the other slaves that were a part of Terra and other plantations around their small little um, farming community. So uh, there's not that many characters that even are given a voice, uh, people of color who are given a voice in this novel. And if they are, then sometimes they're just really annoying or they seem really dumb or violent or um, threatening. And so there's a lack of accuracy and there's a lack of fullness there. And so what are we missing when we read a historical account of a huge part of Southern history when a majority of its population is muted or inaccurately portrayed? I think we see the impact of this inadequate portrayal in the release of the movie. So Hattie McDaniel, who was the actress who played Mammy, actually won an Oscar for her portrayal of the role, which is amazing and wonderful. And she's a great actress. But even at the award ceremony in, what was this? I'm assuming the 30s or early 40s after the movie was released, Um, She wasn't allowed to sit with the white attendees, the other actors and actresses, her colleagues. She was sat off at a table at the side and it's painful to read these descriptions. It's very difficult and challenging. We're not hearing from those characters what their obstacles to survival are, what their disappointments in life have been. All we hear from is Scarlett, who we already know is an unreliable narrator um, because she's so self-concerned. We have to ask ourselves, okay, well, is this novel, is the intention of this novel to give an accurate representation of both sides and to, to show the wrestling and the nuances of the causes and the motivations behind the Civil War and um, post-war life? 
No, I don't think it was. And, but at the same time, even if it is just some sort of romance um, storyline that we're swept away in, is there still some sort of obligation to give a, per, a platform or to at least do a fair representation of a huge people group during that time? You know, if we're going to get the chronological details right of Civil War battles and um, different things like that that Mitchell was, seemed really determined to do, the least she could do is even for the few characters that she had in the book to not be some sort of comedic relief. If the purpose of this novel is not to necessarily give an accurate historical portrayal, what is the purpose, right? If the purpose is to represent the pain of grief and loss and devastation caused by the Civil War, then we should be acknowledging the devastation of the Civil War and of Reconstruction to Black Americans. And it may not be the premise of the entire novel. I recognize that. It's told from the perspective of an anti-hero white um, daughter of a pl plantation owner, but leave a little room, you know, leave a little room. And the parts that you are including of people of color in this book, do, do them justice and don't leave them as caricatures. Post-war Blacks in the book are described as creatures of small intelligence, and they're like monkeys or small children turned loose among treasured objects whose value is beyond their comprehension. They ran wild, either from perverse pleasure and destruction or simply because of their ignorance. And so it's this very vile, like threatening perspective of African-Americans um, at the time of uh, reconstruction and when culture was really shifting post-war and when a description like that is made of a people group who have just gained some semblance of freedom and are also probably grappling with anger and a desire for justice but I don't think that this description does any justice to um, exemplify that kind of righteous anger or the African-American experience in the reconstruction period um, because it's it's demeaning and ultimately it just fuels this fear-based mentality among whites, white Southerners, that it's a group to fear and they're still other than us. If you haven't read The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby, um, it's an excellent read that gives a broad uh, historical overview of how the Southern church um, oftentimes the Southern Baptist Church, speaking as someone who grew up in that church, how so often the Southern Protestant Church, Evangelical Church, has been complicit in racism. If I'm not mistaken, one of the things Jamar Chisby has talked about is the most dangerous thing about racism is the fear that's involved. It's mostly out of fear that causes the most damage to Black Americans they find it more easy to justify violence. We need to know this novel in order to combat the lies that this novel has culturally been a part of. I read an article um, today that was talking about how the women passed down this novel to their daughters and their fam as a family heirloom. It, and it's just perpetuating the stereotypes that are harmful that as Christians, we should be denouncing. Again, I just keep on coming back to the fact that we have to question 
our motivations for reading a novel like this. So we have to recognize, okay, this probably isn't going to portray fully the life and the truth of Southern life during Civil War uh, history. Is it an entertaining read for the survival of it, for the grit of it? Yes. Even then, it's like, how much are we willing to wade through to get to the redeemable qualities of a book like this? One thing that my cultural church experience typically does very well is encouraging people to think critically about the popular culture that they're consuming. I think that is something that we need to be continuing to do as we read these novels, like Sydney was talking about asking ourselves, why are we reading and, and what can we take away from this? And and really reading through a lens of this is not the Bible. So where can scripture and truth be applied? Um, and what parts can scripture sharpen in this case? And this is one of the main reasons why we chose to do a novel like this, because there are qualities of it that you have to embrace and qualities of it that you have to criticize and bring a lens of redemption to you. So what do we do with Margaret Mitchell herself? What can we decide are intentional failures on her part as an author um, portraying a society that she herself grew up in? One article that I read mentioned that Mitchell propagandizes history to promote the lost cause of the South. So she uses elements of the Civil War and of Southern history uh, to move along the plot of her fictional characters, right? And so um, in doing that, she presents um, African-Americans as caricatures and are marginalized as being a component, um, just a small part of the Southern culture that Scarlett and Red and Ashley and Melanie and all of the characters are living. So I think it shows her willful, willful ignorance of her own history and her decision to limit her research to her own experience, which she said in multiple interviews is what she got her inspiration from. She often told reporters that she was 10 years old before she learned that Robert E. Lee did not win the Civil War. And so, you know, reporters would be like, ha, 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 ha. But, you know, it's tongue in cheek. But what did Mitchell do with this knowledge of her culture altering truth, right? Did she approach her own knowledge, her own experience of her Southern culture, of her perspective of African-Americans in the South um, with wariness? Probably not. Yeah, so I, I think we would say today that at the very least, at the very least, we would ask for an introduction or a preface just to remind the reader, hey, I'm not trying to do something historically accurate in, in a traditional sense. Um, I'm pulling on historical context, you know, kind of like at the beginning of Law and Order when it says, like these are very loosely like inspired by, but not really based on true events. And I think that is, is something that we in this current culture would ask of the author to do, um, step one. Step two, I think we would also ask, don't dehumanize anyone, regardless of the accuracy that you're trying to convey. You don't have to make other people look bad to do it. Give people humanity, especially marginal traditionally, historically marginalized groups, 
if you're not going to be accurate, then you should be elevating them. So what do we do with that? And I think part of our role as a reader is to try to redeem and reframe Mitchell's work with other um, perspectives, you know, uh, and some authors have tried to do this by writing similar works. So books like The Wind Done Gone by Alice Randall is a parody retelling of Gone with the Wind through a slave's perspective working for Scarlet. Um, there have been authorized sequel, sequels like Scarlet by Al Alexandra Ripley and Rhett Butler's People by Donald McCaig. Um, and so they try to redeem, but they ultimately fail to redeem the whitewashing of African-Americans from the original work. And so it really is the reader's role to examine the errors and the discrepancies in an novel like this and to supplement it with their own research and learning and understanding and listening. I think a lot of people might have the question, does reading this novel, does watching the movie continue to give false credit to this whitewashing that you just described. The, the idea that I'm adding to the reputation by consuming it, right? Like I'm, I'm adding to the demand for it, um, which makes it appear as if it's a good thing or as if people want it. At what point do we need to say, that's not appropriate. I'm not going to give it my time and attention. John Piper, he, he mentioned this about worship songs. Um, he said, if we're trying, there are a lot of things that we can, um, give grace to and correct in our minds as we're listening to a worship song if it's not 100% the best song we've ever heard or isn't like 100% theologically accurate or full. But if we're working too hard on it, does it give glory to God? And so I think we have to ask ourselves this question with Gone with the Wind. If we have to work so hard to avoid um, the ugly parts or just redeem or criticize the ugly parts of this book, why are we giving it such a platform? Jeff Yang, he, um, he, re he writes editorials for CNN, and he said, removing offensive art from view actually makes it harder to contend with them, and it allows creators, companies, and audiences to comfortably pretend that they never existed and to move frictionlessly onward without engaging in real structural change in the present. And so I think if we read books like this, we have to recognize why we need to read books like this. We need to develop a critical perspective and ability to think critically and to see the good parts and the redeemable parts, you know, the themes of survival and grit and grappling with disappointment and failure that this book evokes, but also recognizing that, man, it's not as full of a perspective as you would think a book like this would have being a Pulitzer Prize winner and selling, you know, millions and millions of copies and have, having been translated into so many different languages. So if you have read Gone with the Wind, if you're interested in reading it, I would also encourage you to read some supplementary books. Uh, the Battleground by Ellen Glasgow is a more realistic historical romance. So it still has this, the exciting sensational elements of romantic epic that Gone with the Wind has, but it definitely has a more realistic approach to the history of Civil War life. Jubilee by Margaret Walker is a kind of Black rewriting of Gone with the Wind, and it's gotten critical acclaim, and it's just, I, I hear it's a really amazing read. Any works by Frederick Douglass and The Instance of the, in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs is also a really um, compelling read to give a correct portrayal of African-American life during this time. The most important takeaway, I think, that Allie and I can both agree with this book just to listen humbly to perspectives of people from different cultural backgrounds and skin colors in your life. The goal is to understand 
and to bridge the gap in areas we may not have a full perspective or experience of ourselves. And that takes a lot of humility because we have to constantly repent and ask God to reveal areas of our life that we hold stereotypes, we hold fear, as Ali um, quoted Jamar Tisby saying. And that's a hard process just with any area, not just racism, but with any area. But that's the beauty of reading fiction is that it evokes conversations like this. And we're allow, allowed to um, make room for questioning, make room for repentance if we're framing things within the lens of the gospel and redeeming things that need to be redeemed. Let's talk about some biblical application. In terms of truth, we need to read everything alongside the truth of scripture. You know, going first to the gospel and understanding who Jesus is and what he stands for and how he acts and looking at the text and asking ourselves, does this portray that? If not, how should I respond to it? In terms of beauty, we have seen characters um, sadly in the novel, not beautifully, but sadly in the novel, not have freedom and autonomy. In terms of the reader's role, one thing that is beautiful is we do have the freedom um, to consume art critically. We have the freedom to ask hard questions, to have hard conversations, to take the good and to leave the bad, or not to leave it, but to challenge it directly. And for justice, in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, it says, God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret, secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. And so I think there's a comfort that we have to receive when we are analyzing a kind of work like Gone with the Wind uh, within the context of scripture and um, where there's a lack in Gone with the Wind of justice and of correct representation. Uh, we just have to trust that the Lord is going to bring it into alignment and that he's still doing the work of justice and, and righteousness here on earth. We are partners and uh, image bearers of, of Christ and that um, reading fiction with a critical eye is just one way that we can partner with God. Yeah, what's giving you life right now, Sydney? Yeah, so right now, um, I have kind of been bouncing between a few different books, but I've landed on one book called March by Geraldine Brooks. And I think I told you a little bit about it, Allie, but it's a book that won the Pulitzer Prize in fiction, I think in 2006. And it's a it's the portrayal of little women from the perspective of their absent father. And so it's all about um, kind of flashbacks and his experience of civil war as a Yankee chaplain. So it's been really interesting to read. That sounds awesome. I um, have been reading God with the Wind, but <laughs> what's giving me life right now is today I started a documentary series on Netflix called, I think it's called This Is Pop. Um, and I love documentaries. And this one interviews different pop singers and just tells their story. So the first episode was on boys to men and it was so good. And I learned so many cool and wonderful things. And of course there's just wonderful music throughout the whole episode and it was really well done. Yeah, this is, this is pop on Netflix. 
What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? This poem is called Harlem by Langston Hughes. And I read it because the title of our next uh, text is a play called A Raisin in the Sun. And while there are many problematic pieces about Gone with the Wind, we wanted to do something that elevated the humanity and the voices of our Black siblings. And so we will be reading the play A Raisin in the Sun, which talks about a family figuring out what it means to live the American dream in a culture that um, presents more obstacles and challenges for Black Americans. Mm -hmm.